0: And as you sit down, I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We want to spend some time with the Word of God this morning. We've been traveling through the book of Nehemiah. We'll continue to do do so. This uh, week, we're going to uh, continue in Nehemiah chapter 2 and look at verses 9 through 16. We're going to say that last little section of chapter 2 until next week. I'm trying to make uh, the chunks small enough that we can, uh, that you can pay good attention and learn and not be overwhelmed or have too much. I know there's a couple of weeks that we're still trying to digest and we're gonna continue kind of going back and and pulling things we've we've been talking about all the way through, pulling them back in and making sure we're continuing to go through. So we're going to, uh, uh, this week, uh, if you remember at the beginning, I said we can, we can look at this text as a historical text. We're going to do some of that today. We can look at it as a spiritual primer for us. We're going to do some of that today as well, uh, pulling some stuff into, into our world today, our, our spiritual walk with the Lord. And we can do some, uh, we can look at this as a, a bit of a, a textbook for leadership development, and we're going to do some of that today too. So let's read through the text first of all. I think that's the best place to start. We want to uh, be exposed to the word and then walk through it and see what the Lord wants to say to us. Verse 9 of chapter 2. Then I came, I being Nehemiah, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So let's jump into the text here. And to just walk through some things that we want to uh, see what we can glean from the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to start with the very first thing. For we ended last week with the recognition that Nehemiah, after spending time in prayer, after hearing uh, of the status of the people of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem itself, Nehemiah prayed, he wept, he mourned, he, 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 was, he was in distress, and he finally had opportunity before the king where the king said, why do you look like this? And Nehemiah said, here's what I want to do. The king granted him his request. And so he travels back to Jerusalem. You know that he kept pushing the envelope. He not only said, can I go? He said, can you give me letters uh, to give me safe passage? And then he said, I'm still not done. Can you also, by the way, make some provision for me so that I gain some lumber from your forest to rebuild the walls, the houses, all those things. So he comes to the governor. And I didn't, I should have said this last week perhaps, but I thought maybe this week it fits in better. A little bit of historical perspective for you. Maybe you don't like stuff like this but I do. You notice that it says that it's the governors of the province beyond the river, as if that's some kind of like place there. I thought it might be helpful for you just to see a map. I like maps. Maps shows, this one right here in the light colored section shows you, this is actually the peak of the Persian empire. Uh, Technically speaking, it's about uh, 30 years before the text we're reading takes place, because uh, when Artaxerxes was uh, the king of Persia, the the kingdom now he didn't know this at the time cuz he's living in it but from what we look back at the kingdom was actually in decline already it was actually getting smaller so it was slightly smaller than what you see here but this was this was at its peak you see that the kingdom of persia if you have any idea what geography looks like uh, that's pretty much the entire middle east a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of Europe there, a lot of uh, Central Asia, a little bit up into Northern Asia even, down into this part here. Uh, India is all the way here on the right-hand side of your map, a little bit into Egypt, a little bit in the, the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. So it was the largest uh, uh, nation, although to call it a nation is a bit of a weird thing. The largest nation at the time... Now, they took over a lot of other nations, right, a lot of other tribes, and so really had a lot of subsections in it. Uh, just to give you a little bit of reference, we, we read the beginning of uh, the book of Nehemiah that he was in the winter palace or the citadel of Susa. That's where, uh, you see there there's a couple of green stars there, that was really the central place of power for the Persian empire. Uh, it's modern-day Iran, actually just across the river there's Iraq, but modern-day Iran and that's where, uh, that's where this, the, the main part where the king was at. Now, he did have some. I don't know if I can figure out how to make this. There you go. The king, they did have some palaces over this way. So this, is this line right here is the king's road. And so he would travel back and forth here. He spent some time here. That's modern-day uh, uh, Turkey, if I can say that right. But if you look here, there is uh, Jerusalem is over here in this. Uh, you saw where I drew the circle there on the Mediterranean. You can't really distinguish the sea from the, from the land. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Jerusalem is there. There's a river there. You guys all know this river. It's the Euphrates River. It's sort of the main river in Scripture and in the world at that time. So the province beyond the river is everything that's on the south and west side of the Euphrates. Now, it actually was several other small little places, little... Now, what they did is they took... Uh, When they took over a nation, they would disperse them often. But they would put people in place, and he would have some sub-rulers. They called them satraps. Think of the book of Daniel. You you read about satraps all the time. These are actually, the little sections are called satrapies, if you want to use that technical term. But little regions, little provinces. And so there's several different governors that are in these areas right here that he has to pass through. And even these are different satrapies that have uh, provincial rulers. We're going to hear some of their names here in just a little bit. This is what uh, Nehemiah travels to. And he has these letters to these different, he calls them uh, the governors of these different areas to pass through. Because they're all tasked with carrying out the higher Artaxerxes king of Persia's wishes. A little history there. A little background there. It's important because not only does the king give him letters, but you notice he gives them some officers from the army and some horsemen to accompany him and ensure his safety. We read right away, I show you all that because we read right away, that as they get close to Jerusalem, they have to pass through what was Samaria before. Now, Samaria is now not occupied by Samaritans or by by Israelite people because they've been dispersed. In fact, that happened before Judah. But there's this guy called Sanballat who is a Horonite. Now, there's a good chance that he actually has some Israeli blood in him. When you look at his name, there's a really good chance that he has some Israeli blood in him, although it's a, a, some, there's some delusion going on here. So it's, he's, not, he's not a purebred Israelite, but he is the governor of that area. By the way, independent of the Bible, there's, a, there's a, a papyri, a scrap of ancient paper that they found in a place called Elephantine, which is down in Egypt. That is called the, not surprisingly, Elephantine papyri. And uh, that actually refers by name to this guy, Sanballat, as the governor of Samaria. So there's independent historical documents that verify that this guy lived around this time and that some things happened during his time that didn't make him happy. Now, it doesn't call the guy Nehemiah by name, but it's what what they're referring to, that people came back to Jerusalem. He got up in arms. He had some back and forth with the king. You can read about this in the book of Ezra, and also we're gonna read about it a little bit in Nehemiah here. When Sanballat heard and the, uh, the, the Ammonite servant, uh, Tobiah, heard, it displeased them greatly. They saw this group of people with the king's blessing move through their area and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, the reason it displeased them is because that was in the corner pocket of their territory. Jerusalem, no longer an important city, where they lived was the center of power in their little province, and they saw The potential for what was going to take place, which is Jerusalem was an ancient mighty city, right? Used to be the kingdom, the center of power for the Jewish nation. And if they're rebuilding it, that doesn't, that's not gonna go well for them. Because suddenly there's power going to some other corner of their little kingdom that they have built. Now, what's really happening, we can read about in a couple of verses here. For example, Proverbs 27, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel. I don't know if you think about this, but wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Now, just stop for a moment and see if this verse plays out in your own lives. Have you experienced relationships that have um, gone south because of wrath or anger or cruelty? But notice what is one of the most long-lasting One of the most devastating within families, within churches, within areas, take your pick, one of the most long-lasting, devastating uh, things that happen to our relationships is when there's jealousy, when there's envy, when there's things going on that people don't like because they wish they themselves had it. Notice, by the way, how often in our lives we cloak jealousy under something else, under the guise of something else. Be honest with yourself. How many times have you found it to be true? Don't look outside anymore. Look inside. How many times have you found it to be true that you get upset about something that somebody's doing, and it may come in the guise of some kind of spiritual thing or some kind of righteous thing or some kind of this isn't right or this isn't, but in the end, you've had to realize it was just pure, plain and simple jealousy, envy, they were doing something or it was they were being elevated in some way or something was happening to them or they were doing something that you wished you could have done or would have happened to you and you said, I wish I could have that. Psalm 112 reflects this way. Now, the first part of the entire psalm, which I think I'll just take time to read this morning, first part of the entire psalm talks about the condition and the status and the position of the righteous. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Lots and lots of good things. That's the place we want to be, right? But look at the very last verse. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Isn't it interesting how God arranged one psalm? Nine verses chock full of the benefits, the position, the blessing that rests upon those who are righteous. And one verse at the very end that reminds us how The wicked respond to that. We see the exact same thing, if you're tired of Old Testament references, we see the exact same thing unfolding in the New Testament. When the book of Acts starts and the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to to flourish and to go out, we know that Peter and John, they went to the temple and they began to teach. And in Acts chapter chapter 4, verse 1, it says that as they were speaking, as Peter and John were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they came upon them greatly annoyed. There's There's the Greek equivalent of the word we just read in Nehemiah chapter 2. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Did you ever stop to wonder, why was it such a big deal to the leaders of the Jewish people that they were telling people there's a resurrection of the dead? Most Jewish people, now the Sadducees accepted, but most Jewish people agreed with that. Why were they so upset then? It all comes down to that key that they said that in Jesus they were preaching this. We see jealousy. We see those things stirred up, and we see them responding with great annoyance at what was happening. But I want us to see something this morning that I think is critical for us. I pointed out how Proverbs says this is true. That's how we interact with each other. How in Psalms, we see this clash between the righteous and the wicked and how that dynamic works. How in Acts, the, the leaders of the Jewish church responded this way to those who were bringing the gospel. But the reality is, lest we bring this all down to this is just how we as humans are unkind to each other, are jealous of each other, don't like when other people have good things happen to them, don't like when God blesses other people and elevates them, how all that works together. There is something going on behind that that we have to always remember. For Jesus said these words in John chapter 10 verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What we see playing out on the human level with each other in terms of jealousy and not liking when other people are elevated or blessed, what we see there is but a microcosm of the great battle that's happening behind the scenes. For Satan does not like it when God blesses his children. He does not like it when they are elevated. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came that we may have life and we may have life abundantly. This is actually the battle we're seeing in Nehemiah chapter 2, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, when they hear and they are greatly displeased because there's someone who is seeking the favor, who wants to bring favor to the people of Israel, God's people, we should not just see an isolated case of people who didn't like what was happening in Jerusalem. We should understand that the very enemy of our souls said, I don't like when God is blessing his creation." when God is lifting them up, when God is giving them something that he knows he will never get. And therefore, he comes to oppose. Immediately, I love that it comes so early in the story because it's so important for us to know, immediately when God is stirring and rebuilding and doing things among his people, immediately there comes opposition. Friends, brothers, and sisters, it should be no different. We should expect no difference for us today. If we are going to attempt to seriously take a look at broken down walls, at burned gates, and having the Lord Jesus through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit, stirring the Word of God in us, change those, rebuild those, if we want to make any serious effort at that, we will know that we will expect opposition. Might have already be happening. Probably is already happening in some cases. For it's not what the enemy wants. He does not like what it says here, that someone had come to seek the welfare of God's people. By the way, on a grand level, that's exactly what Jesus did, right? He came to seek the welfare of God's people. But on a much smaller scale, that's what we now, as his ambassadors, are supposed to be all about, is seeking the welfare of other people. Now, I can tell you, there's there's all kinds of rabbit holes going on. I don't want to accept to make this statement. I can tell you it's one of the reasons that Christianity gets a pretty negative rep, which is not always deserved because the world is not going to be big fans of Christianity. But one of the reasons it gets a bad rep is because we have demonstrated that we're not always into this to seek the welfare of other people. We see this clash happening all around us right now. How do we clearly proclaim the truth of God and yet do it in a way that is seeking their welfare? that they know it's seeking their welfare. Let's move on. Nehemiah, with the point of the message here today, with the heart of the text is here today, is not what we've discovered, but it's this actually. In verse 13, we read this, that Nehemiah comes, he's there for three days. I don't know how if you've ever stopped to think about, I'm guessing we don't usually stop to do this stuff, but if you ever stopped to think about, if you were in Nehemiah's shoes, and you had, were called by God to go back and rebuild the wall, and you come back to Jerusalem, what's the first thing you would do? Where would you begin this work? I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't know, like, it's hard to visualize what to do. And, of course, we already know the story. But I suspect in many times for us, we would probably point to something and say, well, I'd like to try to start building a a consortium of people around me that that catch my vision to to, to, to do what I want to do. It's not the first thing Nehemiah does, is it? Nehemiah is there three days, and in the middle of the night... I just put one verse up there, but in the middle of the night, he gets up on the beast he has. I don't know if it's a donkey or a horse, and he has some people with him, but they go out, and he inspects the wall. Now, I'm guessing that the middle of the night is probably not the most ideal time to make an inspection of what the status of the wall is, right? Like, we should understand this is not ideal. This is not, he doesn't, he's not doing it in broad daylight, and we get some glimpses why here in a little bit, but he's, he, he's, He's doing some things with intentionality that we should pay attention to. Because if he's doing them with intentionality, it means that we should, uh, we should learn from that. We should understand why he's doing what he's doing. He goes out by night, and he makes a circuit, a route around Jerusalem, and he's assessing the damage. He's seeing, how bad is this really? What, 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 what's really the status? I've heard the report... I was moved in my spirit. I prayed. God answered my prayer. The king honored my request because God answered my prayer. I'm back here now, but now what is it really like? What's really the status? I'm going to make a couple of, uh, of leadership points uh, just as we go through this part here because I think it's really important to pull out a couple of things. The first is this. I think it behooves us to verify information for accuracy. Certainly if you're a leader and influencing other people, you may have experienced this already, but the damage that happens when you hear something and you, and you respond accordingly, you get all this stuff going in motion, and you're about halfway through, or you maybe you're all the way through, and you realize that the information you heard to start with was not quite accurate. And all the things you just did were based on a false premise. A godly leader will verify the information he's given for accuracy. Now, I recognize you might say, but Merlin, it's not possible to always do that like this. And I don't know, maybe it's not. But I submit to you that Nehemiah went to great lengths. So if we're going to excuse ourselves by saying, it's not really practical, I'm so busy, I have so much to do, I can't really chase everything down. Well, I don't know, to me, a guy being there and going out in the middle of the night and trying to inspect a broken down wall and seeing what the status is, means he went to quite a bit of effort himself to figure out, is this really like what I heard it is? Before I tell anyone else what I'm doing, before I share anything about what's going on, what the Lord has laid on my heart, is this really true? In a general sense, it also just makes, it makes, me, uh, makes me just throw this out there. Can we today in our culture, can we please, please, please do a better job? And I'm as guilty as many of you. I'm not calling you all guilty. I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person, I suppose. But can we please make sure we're verifying our information before we act on it? We are in a culture, we are in, a, in an era that information is so readily available. There's so much. I talked about this a couple months ago. There's so much information out there, and I don't. I mean, I hope this doesn't offend you when I say this stuff like this, because I don't, I don't, I don't intend it that way. But I think we need to understand. uh, It's very easy to recognize the bias that other people have, because it's there, and it's true. They have a bias. It's not as easy to realize that we also have a bias. I think we should be uh, adult enough to understand that we have a bias. We also carry biases inside of us. I'm not, I, we just have to recognize that because that's why we need to, verify. it's really easy to find things that we already agree with, right? Right? Let's make sure we verify information. It's not always accurate. It's always, it's hard to do. In fact, right now, if you're like me, even finding verification of stuff is, is, is almost, is untrustworthy. Because things that, there's just all kinds of things you can say, oh, this is telling me whether this is right or wrong, but I don't even know if I can trust this that's telling me that. Right? It's difficult. I don't know how you take this, but perhaps we should do less worrying about those things that are out there than that we can't verify, and more time worrying about what's happening right around us, if that's the case. Maybe I should flip that around and say, if I can't verify it's true, maybe I shouldn't be talking about it. Can I be honest with you? It feels like what I said was just a big ouch, because I feel like it's a place that really hits us, our culture. I, I grew up in an Amish culture, most of you know that, and if there's one thing that's true about the Amish culture that I think many of us have, is that it's a really, really well-developed network of talking about things and about people. I think we ought to be really careful. But Nehemiah isn't just out there inspecting and making sure that the report he got was accurate. I honestly don't believe that he doubted that for a second, just to be very honest with you. I think it's good that he did. I think it shows the, that's why I made the, the godly leader point. It's integrity. It's, it's making sure that we're not moving off of false information. But I don't think for a second he doubted that they were. I don't think he to, he thought they were telling him lies. Because the Holy Spirit had convicted him of, of what was happening. I also think he was doing something else. I think he was out there looking at the work before him, and he was displaying another godly leader principle. A godly leader counts the cost before embarking. And this comes right out of Scripture. When Jesus spoke of following him, which is the best, the greatest, the most important decision, also the best, but the greatest decision you and I can make, he said these words in Luke 14, 28. He said, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? It borders on one of the things that we really don't do very much at all. We don't spend very much time talking about what it's going to count us to follow Jesus, for example. Sorry, I said that wrong. What it's going to cost us. I think you all caught what I meant. But we don't spend much time counting how much it's going to cost us to follow Jesus. And when we don't, we, in, we just seem to think that it's not going to cost us very much. If you were in Sunday school this morning, I've referred to it twice already. That's how impacting it's been to me. But if you were in Sunday school this morning, you recognize that it says very clearly the parable that Jesus said, it's going to cost you everything. Not just in gaining the kingdom, but many other things. I would tell you everything that you do is a choice that you make, and it will cost you something. It will cost you something to do it, and it will cost you something to not do it. And we spend very little time. Now, I don't want to get us gridlocked where we, like, don't make decisions because we wrestle with it. But we should spend sometimes more time than we do in counting the cost. What is this going to cost me to do this? But just as importantly, what is it going to cost me to not do this? I spent about a year ago, I think we were out in Iowa for meetings, and I spent the entire week of meetings with that question. Actually, it was out of this verse right here. The entire week of meetings saying, here are things that as Christians the Scripture says we should do, and I think we should just be willing to count the cost of doing them and willing to count the cost of not doing them. I can do that because Jesus did that and he can do that because he knows in the end, every single time you do that, doing it God's way will always be worth it. But the reality is we're not always convinced because we don't count the cost. And when we do count the cost, it looks difficult. We We forget to count the cost of what it will cost us to not do it, if that makes sense. Let me give you a quick example. We don't always count the cost for what it means to, uh, to, to forsake what I want to do with my personal time. I, we, I, we were doing praying, so we were praying, and I was saying, I could, I could spend more time in prayer. I could take some of my personal time that I do stuff that I want to do and spend more time in prayer. Maybe that doesn't affect you this morning. Maybe that doesn't hit you this morning. It did me, so I prayed about that. But I can choose to say that's a cost, right? That costs me time. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna get something done if I spend time praying. Not always true, by the way, but I, I'm not going to, right? I mean, I, I, if I assess it that way. But you realize there's a cost to not doing it too. That cost is the time I have with the Lord, the relationship I have with the the Lord, the the trust I build in the Lord. The power I get to see of, of the Lord's hand unleashed because of praying. There's a cost to that. Now, you could point even further down the road than that, by the way, because I think it was Jesus who said the words that if you deny me before men... I will deny you before my Father. And it, I don't want to make a straight-on case about that, but it feels to me like if I'm not willing to spend time with God and acknowledge Him in prayer, that he, I need Him in my life, and that I have to have Him do these things in my life, that it kind of feels like I'm not acknowledging Him, that maybe someday I'll be surprised when I stand before Him and He doesn't know me quite as well as I think He does. Now, of course, He knows me inside and out, but you know what I mean by that statement. That relationship isn't quite as strong as I thought it was. Well... I've taken too long to make that point. Nehemiah is going around and assessing what it's going to cost to rebuild this. He wants to know before he goes in what it's going to look like. He's already faced some opposition, or at least we're aware of the opposition. I don't know what he's actually faced already, but we're aware of the opposition. We're aware of the task that's before, and he knows it's going to be a long haul, and he wants to be able to say, this is what it's going to take. All right, but... I mentioned this before, I am just going to bring this point out uh, just to make sure we understand this, that as of this point, he's made this inspection and he has not shared yet. What he's going to do now I'm guessing because it says that he had a little group of men with him I don't know if they knew or not they may have known this is the group of men that came with him from from uh where he was at in, in Persia from Susa so they may have some idea but it's the people that are already there the officials that are already there the, the priests the Jews the nobles the uh the, the, the people that were going to do the work actually he says I haven't told them yet I haven't brought them on board yet I haven't I haven't done that now we're going to get to that text next week that's what's going to happen next week but again, it's a bit backwards of what we might do. We want to kind of, kind of rally the troops around. We want to kind of say, here's what we're going to do, and then maybe do, make some plans. And he does it the opposite way around. He does an inspection. He makes sure that the information he got was accurate. He makes sure that, he can, that they can complete the task that's before them, how big the task really is. And here's my final leadership principle. He spends time planning before he carries out those plans. He spends time planning... Before he carries out those plans, I think it's a pretty important thing for us to do. Far and away, I would say we are not intentional enough with our lives. We are not intentional enough with our lives. We are too prone to moving through life and just letting the day come. Or what we're intentional about, maybe I should put it this way what we're intentional about is about the things that we live our lives on and and we forget to be that intentional with our spiritual walk. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Because there are some of us that are very intentional about what we have plans for our money. Right now we're in a building project, so we're trying to be very intentional at our house about how we're laying things out, what order things go, getting stuff in the right order so we don't have to be delayed anymore. There's a lot of intentionality with that. And I think that's good. That's how it's supposed to be, right? We've done lots of planning. This current building process that Heidi and I are in, we've looked at those plans probably ever since we moved into the house and have been refining them. So we've been planning and planning and planning and planning. And that's important. But are we that intentional with our spiritual walk with Jesus? Do we spend that much time thinking through, am I, am I taking care? Am I thinking through? Am I planning for what, it, what what's going to help me be the best uh, follower of Jesus possible? Or does that part just kind of get lost in the shuffle? I would say we tend to be not intentional enough. Certainly as a leader... Really many of these, if you notice what I do with a lot of these, these are leadership principles, but honestly, they're just good principles of godliness overall for, for many of us. Most of us are leaders in some context. Nehemiah has now come back. He has brought himself to the place where he's inspecting. He's made sure that he knows what it's going to take. And we're going to see next week that he's going to come now to the people who will end up doing the work, and they will. Uh, he's going to try to convince them that this is a task that they should undertake. I say to you this morning, just sort of a summary of the entire text and bringing, keeping on, making sure we're keeping on bringing with, a couple of weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, I shared with you some places that I think we have broken down walls. I don't know whether you have, and I put this in quotes because it's not a, technical, not, not a literal thing, but I don't know whether you have gotten on your beast and gone out at nighttime and inspected those things and made sure that what I told you was really true. I hope you have, and I hope you will do that. Again, a task will not be completed unless it has been inspected, has been seen what the problem really is, and has been planned on how we're going to approach that. I hope you're not just taking my word, and when I say that we have gotten far too politically involved, or we've relied too much on political process, or we've had too much feminism, or we have too much... Go back to that sermon that I preached. I hope you haven't just said, well, Merlin said it's true, so it must be. Or I hope you haven't just said, well, I don't like that one, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. I hope you've gotten on your beast and gone out during the night and ridden around this issue and said, is this really true? Is this really a gap in our wall or did, did we not get it right? You see, we can't just, this is, what, this is what gets us every time. We can't just say, well, that was a great message that one Sunday. That was awesome. I agreed with all that stuff. Amen to that. And now we're going to move on to the next one and then we're going to move on to the next one and we're just going to keep on going. That, that will accomplish us Nothing. We have to continue to say, now we have to inspect it. We together, not just me, we have to inspect it and say, is this really how it is? And of course, that's going to allow us next week to say, jumping ahead of us, but we'll get there next week, you see the trouble we are in. Can we come to an agreement and say, yeah, we see the trouble that we're in. We'll ask the Lord to keep helping us walk through this, not just to study it, but to live it out in our lives. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word, perhaps there's things that uh, could have been said and didn't come out right or didn't get said, and I've asked God through you to fill in the gaps where I didn't, perhaps there are things that were said that shouldn't have been, and I ask God that you remove those things or remind me so I can correct them, but in all those things, Father, we want to learn not just the story of Nehemiah and what he did, we want to learn from Nehemiah and what we can do and need to do. Thank you for the way that your word continually builds us up. Your spirit continually leads us. We want that to be true. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.